Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a super fun episode. We've got Mike Chamberlain, who is a professor professor at the University of Georgia, and he's a wild turkey nut on the line. He does a lot of wild turkey research. Mike, how you doing? Doing well, Jay. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having you on. So, Mike, um, give the, me and the listeners a bit of a breakdown on your background uh, and you know your education as far as uh, where you studied, as well as uh, what got your love for wild turkeys and how that's got you where you're at now. Yeah, so uh, I was the suburban kid that, that grew up uh, having a dad that hunted on the weekends. I grew up in Virginia, been a, a hunter since I was a child. Um, did my undergraduate degree at Virginia Tech in wildlife science, and from there was lucky enough to get an offer to go to graduate school at, at Mississippi State. And at the time, I was interested in turkeys, but my real passion was was deer, anything with antlers. And to some degree, uh, I'm still an antler addict, and, but uh, that's a different story. <laughs> but I was, I was given an option to, to choose a couple of different research projects that were available, and one of them was on wild turkeys. And and I thought, well, you know, turkey hunting is great. I love doing it. Let's go with the turkey project. And boy, that was a that was a fateful decision because from there, I ended up uh, completing my master's degree, and then was given a chance to stay on at that university and do a PhD program again, focusing on turkeys. Except the the gist of that study was looking at how turkeys interact with their predators, bobcats, coyotes foxes, raccoons, etc. So I, I did a lot of work with all of those species and turkeys. And then from there, I uh, went to Louisiana State University where I was a faculty member for about a decade. And I've been at the University of Georgia for about nine years. And so I guess collectively, I've been studying turkeys for about the past 26 years steadily. That's awesome. Um, when you're not studying turkeys hunting turkeys what else what other passions do you have i am a i will hunt anything <laughs> um i'm i love to hunt i i'm a big deer hunter i travel quite a bit to hunt i enjoy going different places and hunting different species and going to different continents and meeting different people so I, my number one really my only real hobby is hunting Awesome. I dab, you know, I dabble in some other things. I fish a little bit, but, but really my passion is to hunt. Mike, that's awesome. I'm just going to dive straight in here because um, I know you only have so much time and I appreciate your time. Uh, there's been so much talked about um, predation with turkeys and I believe there's so much information out there. I'm not so sure how much of it is accurate and, and, and not. I think a lot of it comes from guys like myself who just witness certain things and then they just throw out a blanket statement of, you know, like this is, this is the end all be all. Um, when it comes to predation on turkeys, what would you say is the number one predator on turkeys? It, it really depends on whether you're talking about adults or nest. So you, you basically look at it from an adult perspective at least in the southeast and, and southern U.S., which is where a lot of my work occurs, without question, 
uh, bobcats and horned owls, great horned owls, are without question the number one predators of adults. We see, of course, coyotes will take some, but not many. We, we don't see many coyote deaths. We do see quite a, quite a number from bobcats. Of course, if you're talking about toms or males, you know, we're, we are the number one predator. Uh, we see very little mortality on males outside of, of gunshot, you know, birds that are being harvested by hunters. If you're looking at nest, um, it gets, it gets more complicated. Uh, all of the smaller mammalian predators, raccoons, opossums, skunks, all take nest. We we know that bobcats take nest. Uh, not only do, will they kill the the attending female when she's incubating, but they'll eat the eggs too. Um, foxes will take eggs. A lot of people don't realize it, but snakes are a huge predator of the nest. We that's on a lot of our study sites. That is the number one predator of eggs are the rat snakes, rattlesnakes, other species of, of snakes that are willing to take the eggs. So it's a long line of, of animals that eat turkeys, for sure. As you, I'm not sure how much traveling you've done, say, out west, would you say, how would that change as far as predation on, you know, full-size birds and nests uh, being the number one predator? Uh, would bobcats still be at the top of the food chain as far as, um, you know, killing adult birds, or does it, you know, go, do, do coyotes get more than bobcats as, as you move out here where there are more coyotes? Yeah, we don't see, I mean, we have some really dense coyote populations in the southeast right now, and in pockets, not like you do in some of the western, more arid places, but the work that we've done on Rios, which we've done a lot of work on Rios, we don't see predation rates, um, a whole lot different than we do say on Easterns with the exception that uh, you, you tend not to see as many adult deaths as you do say with Easterns because Rio's and, and Merriam's to a, a certain degree, you know, they, they use more open habitats and, um, and they can see a little bit better than Easterns can, not that their vision's any different, just their, the, the habitats they use are more open. So you tend to see that predation's a little bit lower on Merriam's and Rio's. Um, the predator community out west is a little less diverse. So you, you tend not to see as many species of, say, the mammals eating nests. But what you do see, which is pretty interesting, the, for instance, say the snakes that would that would take Western birds, eggs are different, you know, coach whips are a real common uh, snake that is responsible for quite a bit of loss to, to Rios. Um, Caracaras, crested Caracaras, you know, a bird that, that will eat eggs uh, of Rios that you don't, you know, they don't even interact with, with most Easterns at all. So um, predation goes down a little bit, but it's, it's, still, it's still pretty high. When you talk about snakes um, having a big impact, a lot more than people would think, um, let's talk a little bit about, let's back up a little bit and talk about when the hens um, sit on the nests and when they start 
laying their eggs, one of the things I've got questions about are, does the hen stay on the ground on the nest all the time with that um, clutch of eggs at a certain point when she gets a certain amount of eggs or does she literally every day lay a new egg? Can you walk through that a little bit uh, for us? Yeah, so what they, what they do is they, once they start laying, as they get on into the laying sequence, say five, six days in, they'll start incubating a little bit each day. So they show up at the nest site, they lay an egg, and they'll stay there for a little while. And, and they're, what they're doing is actually they're getting all the eggs synchronized. They're, they're allowing a little bit of development by, by sitting there and incubating so that when they lay that last egg and they start continuous incubation, that everybody's, I guess you could say, on the same page, uh, for lack of a better word. All the egg development is the same so that everybody hatches at pretty much the same time. Once she starts incubating full-time, what they generally do is the first few days of incubation, they will spend more time off the nest than they do later in incubation. They may, we have even have birds that roost at night. Uh, they may incubate all day and then roost off of the, the, the nest that night for, say, the first night. But once they get through a few days, they're continuous incubators. They, most birds will take one to two, maybe three, but it averages about one and a half what we call uh, incubation recesses. And all that is is she takes a break once a day, maybe twice a day, and she travels some distance from the nest, forages for a little while. Uh, turkeys love the dust and, and preen and uh, do kind of self-maintenance things, and then they go back to the nest and they resume incubation. As they're getting really close to hatching, they don't do that as frequently, and they spend almost all of their time at the nest until the eggs start to hatch. Gotcha. So are, is there a period of time when they will not roost and they will stay on the ground even in even at night? Yeah, yeah. They, they start doing that um, within a day or, at, or two at most of laying that final egg. And so then once how they, long do they stay on the nest from there until the, the, the eggs hatch? Uh, it's usually about 27 to 28 days. So they're spending about a month of time on the ground at night. And that, I would, I would think that's when a big, I would think that's when a big part of predation takes place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you yeah, say it's fact, the majority of the predation is when the hen is on the ground? at night oh without without a doubt um it, it, we don't know that it's always at night but without question the birds that we we've we've monitored over 500 hens with with gps telemetry the past five or six years and of those that die while they're incubating all of them except i, I can think of one exception was killed at the nest so that's that's the risky spot is at that is at that nest site. All right, a couple questions that have popped up. So I would assume cover where the where the hen turkey choose, chooses to make her nest and lay her eggs is super important when it comes to 
predation and I would assume that some hens are better than others at building and making nests. Have you done studies on enough hens that, you know, year after year to know that, yes, there's hens that have an exceptional, you know, knack, so to speak, to lay in a, a nest and, and not get, you know, the nest raided and or are there turkey hen, you know, hen turkeys that, you know, quite frankly, year after year do a horrible job and it seems that their nest always gets raided. Yeah, we, we do see some evidence of that, Jay. We, we see that some hens, uh, a hen that, that is successful this year tends to have a greater probability of being successful next year. Uh, and, and conversely, if they're unsuccessful this year, they have a really high chance of doing the same thing next year. So, that, so to your point, yes, there, there does appear to be some hens that are just better at it than others. Um, from a cover perspective, that, that the question about cover, believe it or not, and it, this is something that, that frankly, I didn't, I, I've believed this for many years. We've always thought that more cover is better, that uh, nest sites that are thicker, that are denser, would, would be better. And in reality, what we see is that is not true at all. In fact, we see no relationship between how much cover is out of nest and whether it's going to hatch or not. Zero relationship. Uh, and it has me really scratching my head because it, we're now starting to think that maybe, you know, turkeys make a living using their eyes. I mean, you know this as a hunter. I mean, turkeys, their number one line of defense is their eyesight. And we're start, starting to think that that maybe we've kind of looked at this wrong. Instead of thinking, well, she's trying to hide, maybe what she's trying to do is hide in plain sight. In other words, maybe she's trying to identify a place where she could she can hatch, but she can also see. And if that's the case, then maybe this this notion that, well, it's just cover is what we're looking for is a bit misguided. And, and that that's something that, you know, when you say that to people, they think, well, no, oh, you're crazy. But uh, we see, I, in fact, I just posted this um, to my social media accounts this week was a, some figures showing pictures at successful nest and, and, and failed nest, and they look the same. And the reason is because no two nests are the same. They're all different. And most of them fail anyway. So the vegetation... They, the, the stuff we measure at the nest site doesn't translate to being success or being failed because um, either we're measuring the wrong things or we've kind of looked at it diff incorrectly for years and maybe it's not just cover that's driving nest success. Do you think she is, well, this is kind of a, do you think that she is picking those nest sites where she can see so she's almost self-preservation, that she knows that if she sees a predator coming, that she can, you know, fly away or get away and at least save herself? Do you think that that self-preservation has anything to do with that? Yes. In fact, we, we, just, uh, we just completed an analysis where we, we, came to the conclusion there appears to be two types of hens when it comes to how they behave 
during the incubation, how far they travel from their nest, uh, how often they leave their nest, and basically there appears to be two strategies. Some hens stay close, incubate a lot, and it and very clearly those birds are geared towards reproducing. And then there is a the other group of hens that stay away from the nest more. They travel farther away from the nest when they take a break. And those birds are clearly, to what you just said, they are clearly driven more towards surviving than reproducing. There, there does appear to be two strategies, uh, if you will, when it comes to nesting. Is there any scientific data showing one is more successful than the other? I mean, one... You, you kind of put them into two categories. Is there any data showing that one theory or one strategy that they use is, is better in survival, not from her standpoint, but from her clutch standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, the, the birds that tend to stick close to their nest that incubate more that don't, when they do leave, they don't stay gone as long. Uh, when they leave, they stay closer to their nest. Those are those hens tends to they tend to have greater nest success. Really? Yeah. And the birds that that travel farther and stay gone longer tend to have lower nest success, but much greater individual survival. So, kind of you know owing to the the notion that there are two strategies when it comes to incubation, and that's. That's not unique to turkeys. There have been other researchers that have shown similar type strategies for everything from fallow deer, roe deer, other ground nesting birds. There, there's definitely some building knowledge in the scientific community that these animals are wired differently, um, you know, individually. They're not all just wired to be successful reproducers. I'm sure it ma- it differs geographically from state to state and even county to county where you're at as to what do hens specifically look for. I I guess my question is, with as much studying as you've done on them, have you gained enough knowledge to be able to identify yourself as a human, like literally walk out on a farm or walk out in some piece of ground and go, I'm going to go find turkey nests and be able to identify and go, I'm going to look right there. Yep. There's one. Or is it completely random and you just would have to wander onto one? Not that I'm encouraging anybody to look for nests. I'm just wondering, (laughs) I'm just wondering if it's, if the, the, the research has come far enough that you literally could go find nests and be like, yep, there's going to be one there. Yep. There's one, you know, like that. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I'll be honest, every, I've never seen two nests that look the same and the data bears that out that we've, we've kind of talked about that I've seen nest in some wonky, crazy positions I've seen and and they make it work sometimes. Um, there really isn't a pattern and I, and some recent work we've done, I think it says why, and that is, you know, we used to think, as an aside, Jay, this is one of the things that has stumped me the most uh, about some of the recent work we've done. I, I used to think and and even publish papers saying that turkeys did this because I inferred it from the data that I was collecting at the time. But 
we used to think that turkeys walked around and looked for nest sites. Um, you know, this notion that, hey, I'm going to go pick a good spot. and Like we and would re- pick a camp spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in, re- and in reality, they don't do that. Um, what we found is that almost never does a bird in the south visit that nest site until the day she lays the first egg. So we're here in March, and birds are a couple weeks from from incubation, this notion that they're walking around weeks ahead of time and saying, that looks like a good spot, I'll come back here. They don't do that. Instead, what they do is they fly down, their bodies are telling them, go find a spot to lay an egg. They go find a spot to lay an egg, and they do it. And, and, and moreover, the morning they do that, we have gone in and, and evaluated the areas they walked through and found that they're walking by hundreds of potential nest sites that don't look, from you and I's perspective, don't look any different right. than where they end up nesting. So that kind of tells me that it's it literally is more of a, a random kind of, hey, today's the day. I'm going to go find a spot and make it work. And And I think that is why we see some of the really bizarre nest sites that we see is because they just, you know, this is where they, they were walking through at the time. And I'm going to go ahead and walk over there and pick a spot. And it just happens to be really thick or it happens to not be very thick. And, and then I'll give it a go and see what happens. And then back to kind of the strategy thing, I think some of these hens, when it's time to, to make a go of it, are wired differently than other hens. And some of them are thinking, I need to hide. And some of them are thinking, I need to be able to see. Very, very interesting. Um, let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about from kind of a hunting perspective, trying to understand these birds uh, from the time that these birds, you know, when they're in the winter flocks and they're, you know, all together. And then as the spring comes, you know, we always hear that, you know, then they start breaking up and, you know, people that have had um, time to be out there and witness and see it, it's, it's pretty cool to see them split up a little bit. The toms start splitting up into different groups and, uh, you know, they start gobbling more and doing all of that whole thing. I want to talk about actually... Uh, gobblers, you know, I want to say chasing, I'm an elk hunter, but I want to, uh, gobblers with hens, seeking mm-hmm. hens and trying to mate with hens. My question has always been, does one gobbler stay with one hen and mate her and then move to another one? Or would a gobbler in essence be able to mate four or five hens literally in the same day or even in the same hour? That's one question. And then I want to phase into do does one hen get bred by a bunch of different gobblers and just one takes and that's what you know that that's and then she's bred i'm i'm, I'm kind of i don't know the answer to that so those those are two questions i have yeah so let's start with the kind of the the winter flock breakup so what what happens is these birds are end up in these large flocks uh for safety in numbers for one and and then 
they split and, and generally what they do when they split is they split into social groups and those social groups are a combination of two things. They're either birds that were raised together either by they, their siblings or they were raised by the same group of hens as poults. Mm-hmm. Um, and they end up in these social groups. Uh, and those social groups have defined pecking orders. That is what a lot of people will refer to them as. They're, it's just a social hierarchy. So you have a top hen and a second hen and a third hen and so on and so forth. Well, you have the same thing in the, in the toms. So you have this this group of, of toms that's associated with a group of hens. And, and what that's called, yeah, most people, particularly folks out in your, your area, are familiar with, with lex, sage grouse lex, or prairie chicken lex, or mm-hmm. sharp-tailed grouse lex. Well, turkeys use what's called an exploded lex. So you just take that group of sage grouse and you kind of blow it up. And what you end up with is pockets of turkeys instead of all the males standing there displaying together, you end up with pockets that are displaying. And those pockets are these little kind of exploded leks, if you will. And that's the four or five toms you see over here that have 10 hens hanging around with them, or the four toms over there that have eight hens with them. That's the the little, the smaller leks. So what they then do is within that group of, of, of toms, there's a dominant bird that is the primary breeder. And he, with rare exceptions, is the one that is going to do most, if not all, of the breeding. He, he has set himself apart as the dominant bird. They constantly test these pecking orders. So and that's, you know, we see this all the time. These toms are constantly fighting. Um, they display together. They strut together. Uh, turkeys have what's, uh, what's called kin selection, this, and all that means is there's a, there's a benefit to you to stand there and display even if you're not going to be the breeder. If your brother, if your sibling is the dominant tom, and you stand there and display and attract attention, and he gets to breed more hens, it benefits you biologically i know that's an abstract concept but we know that that works in in birds so there's a dominant tom as long as he's present he's going to do the bulk of the breeding these hens to your your second question these hens what they do is they not only will breed with that dominant tom in that group but they will also as they're nearing incubation they will start going and visiting other groups of toms. Um, this is, as you can imagine, would be different as, as you move across the landscape. So if you were in an area where you had, um, for instance, Merriam's or Rio's, where one flock of birds may be a long way from another flock of birds, um, it's more difficult to envision this happening than say for an eastern where they may only have to travel you know a mile to find another group of toms or a half mile or, or, or even less but there is a there's a fitness benefit to the hen if she can breed with multiple toms because what turkeys do which is not atypical for birds but what turkeys do is she breeds with one tom 
and her body stores that sperm and they they store it in these little two and basically tubules in their in their body i call it turkey tupperware which is kind <laughs> of just, yeah, just a funny pun but so every time she breathes with another tom or even the same tom multiple times she stores his sperm and then when it's time for her to start producing a clutch her body releases that sperm and at that point their sperm competition the best sperm wins right the, the fittest most viable sperm are going to produce that egg so the there's real swimmers, benefits the fastest swimmers in essence? yeah okay yeah yeah so if you think about it there's real benefit to a hen breeding with multiple toms because then whoever truly is i mean she may have picked the bird that she the dominant bird the dominant bird in this bunch bred with her but if she breeds with multiple dominant toms or multiple birds in the population their sperm competition and at that point truly the best man is going to win if you will mm -hmm. so that's the way it's supposed to work the Another important thing to think about is these hens dictate when breeding occurs. So you ask a little bit about gobbling. So what happens is when these birds split out of winter flocks, they start gobbling. That gobbling is, is well over a month before hens are going to become receptive because the toms become receptive faster. Their, their testosterone levels increase faster than luteinizing hormone increases in females and all it, it, in layman's terms the the guys are ready before the girls are so that those toms are gobbling and displaying and what they're doing is they're advertising and they're trying to tell her hey i'm best you need to breed with me but the hens are still weeks away from being ready to do that so as soon as they become receptive that's when she starts visiting those dominant toms and the pecking order within the hen population is what dictates that. The, the hen at the top of the pecking order, she's going to breed first, right? She's, she's number one on the ladder, so she's going to breed first. And then the other hens are going to backfill around her. So you, you would not see a situation where you've got a tom that's breeding all of these hens in a group at the same time in, in what you see on the, really is they kind of stagger it. Um, so if you look at the nesting data within a group of hens, hen number one may start laying today. Hen number two starts on Saturday. Hen number three starts on Monday and, and so on and so on and so on. So there's a sequence to how this is supposed to work. And that sequence is, is really driven by that pecking order if that makes sense the that those social hierarchies dictate how this is supposed to work a couple questions there um diving in from the the dominant hen if you will or the one that is going to get bred first down to you know say the 10th hen what kind of t daily time frame can you say okay this one's laying on this day like is is it a seven day period is it a 12-day period? Is it a 25, you know, like how long within that group do all of the gobblers end up breeding the hens and then they're all, you know, going to let, in other words, is there a time frame that you can predict that, hey, between these eight days, most of the hens are going to be laying eggs like crazy? Yeah. So once they, 
once the first hen starts laying, you can see it's a very orderly sequence from hen one to hen two to hen three. I mean, we're talking a day or two apart. There's a, I mean, it's, it's very easy when you graph it. You can see there's a, a very predictable, orderly sequence. So if, let's just say you had 10 hens within... 12, 14, 15 days, those hens are all going to be laying. And, and here's the critical point. If those dominant toms are there, what, what we see, at least in the South, is that if while this is occurring, those dominant toms are either removed or those groups of toms are disrupted, it prolongs the laying period and incubation period for these hens. And this is some stuff we're just, just literally just now putting together. It, it, it appears that if the breeding process is interrupted or, or disrupted, if you will, that it causes this process to take longer than it should. Um, owing to this notion that maybe these, these pecking orders and the, and how these dominant toms are, are, are functioning is maybe a little more complex than what we've understood. And when you say a disruption to the breeding, are you talking about potentially one of the disruptions could be hunting seasons during that time and it, then it's going to prolong the amount of time that they lay the eggs? Yes, it, it very well could. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a real hot topic here in, in my part of the world that, you know, the idea that, that maybe seasons are timed a little bit early in some places because, you know, if you look in the, in the at least in the Deep South, uh, most states, in fact, I think this is, uh, this is pretty common throughout much of the country, but, but most states open their seasons uh, either well before laying and incubation starts or right about the laying sequence. Uh, there's some some exceptions. I mean, some states do it differently than others, but at least across the South and East, um, for the most part, seasons open well before the laying sequence and certainly before the incubation sequence starts. Okay, so let me ask you a hypothetical. If you Let's say we had this property and let's say you and I owned it and we said we want to make, you know, just the most unbelievable turkey hunting property and have tons of, you know, great bird population, nice, good population. And we have the ability to control, at least from a hunter standpoint, impact on these birds. And we don't want to do anything that's going to create a situation where we disrupt that pattern, but we also want to have pr prime hunting opportunities uh, for, for us and our friends. In other words, you have total control over when those dates, and, and you know, I kind of asking because I, I run a Gould's Turkey operation in Mexico, and I'm always curious as to when should I set, you know, the season is from March 31st to May 31st in essence. So it's super long, but I try and hunt during the peak gobbling season. But I mm -hmm. want to know for the health of my properties, when should I, and obviously it's going to be different in Alabama than it is in Arizona or in, you know, Hawaii or Oregon or what have you. But 
Am I better to run my seasons later and let all of the hens and the main part of the breeding happen and then hunt once the hens start hitting the nests? Or is it perfectly fine to take, you know, an acceptable amount of gobblers right during that same period of time when they're, you know, gobbling like crazy and everything's going on? If your if you're harvest rate, it really depends on your the, the amount of hunting activity and your harvest rate. If, you, if you're going into these groups of toms and you're removing one out of a group of four or five weeks before nesting occurs, but, but the harvest rate, the percentage of the population that you're shooting is just really super low, then taking, you know, one bird here and there very likely has, has little impact. If your harvest rate is higher and you're going into these groups of toms and you're removing the dominant bird and or one or more of the other toms, then you are, you're disrupting their breeding. I mean, that we've known this for many years. It's just, um, I think, at least in many in many states the turkey hunting craze caught on and i was guilty of it as well and and it we kind of overlooked the biology of the bird the, the biology of the birds says if you want the most conservative season possible if you if your objective is to be as conservative with your harvest as possible then you should refrain from shooting dominant birds until the peaks and in incubation. In other words, until the majority of your hens are on the nest, and at that point, the bulk of breeding is over with. And if you remove that dominant bird from that area, you're not going to have any measurable impact on the on the remaining reproductive effort in that group of birds. So it, it really just depends on on the objective. So the short answer, if you're asking me based on the biology of the bird. In a general sense, yes, you'd want to wait later. If your harvest rate is really super low, then it may not matter. In other words, if you're taking 1% of your toms a month early, no big deal. If you're going into a local population and you're killing 15, 20, 30% of those toms, that's a problem. I want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com Gear Shop. If you have any optical needs at all, give Cody a call directly at 702-847-8747. You can also send him an email at optics at GoHunt.com. You can also text him at 602-399-3699. I want to thank Go Hunt for their sponsorship. Also remind you guys we're in application season. The Go Hunt Insider is the best western hunting resource tool out there. It's got the best draw odds and harvest statistics available. You can go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Just by signing up, you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt gear shop gift card. I want to thank gohunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U. Uh, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Kuyu.com. Uh, Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. 
Phonescope.com. I want to thank them. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. OnXMaps.com. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount on all orders at OnXMaps. And then ApexMunition.com. Apex Ammunition. It's the home of the TSS, the Tungsten Super Shot. That is the shotgun shells that I'm going to be using on my upcoming turkey hunts. Go to apexmunition.com to find out more. Guys, let's get back to the episode. And I would assume, well, there's so many questions running through my head. So let's say that there's a property and there's, for, for easy math, let's say that there's 10 gobblers on the property. And let's say that there's 30 hens on the property. You would say that if you shot one tom at it early in the season, no big deal. But you start shooting two to three toms, you're going to have a problem over time. That's what you're saying, right? That's correct. Okay. And, 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 and one thing to think about, which is a, which is an, a really important point, and the, we can't really look at a group of birds, you and I, unless we're able to watch these birds for days and days and days before you're looking down the gun barrel at them, we don't know who the dominant Tom is. Right. Because th these birds test each other constantly. Um, a, 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 an older gentleman who used to study turkeys for much of his career, who since retired, his name's Bill Healy, um, he told me once at his home, he said, turkeys never forget a fight. And I said, what do you mean? He said, and this, and this, this man, when, during his career, he imprinted turkeys to himself. He, he raised birds. Is that the guy and I he, saw the show on? No, no, okay. no, that's okay. Joe, that's Joe, that's Joe Hutto. But, okay. um, but Bill, Bill did the same thing, he, except he did it in a scientific context. He, he raised birds, he forged them, he, he, described what bugs they ate, their foraging rates, just really true classic research on turkey behavior. Yes. Um, Bill is widely regarded as, as one of the experts in the world on, on how this bird behaves. And he told me, he said, these birds never forget a fight. They're always looking for a fight. These toms are always looking for the chance to get up in that pecking order so when you watch them and they're all standing there displaying, they're strutting and drumming together, we don't know who the, the dominant bird is. Just because one bird is aggressive or fights towards the other one, that may or may not be the dominant bird. The dominant bird um, may just stand there, and we, I've seen this myself uh, at bait sites. When you have food involved, you, you get to see in the turkey world who's the top dog. Um, you'll have a bird that, that, that's clearly the dominant bird in this bunch. And he really doesn't pay attention to what's going on around him unless it crosses a threshold. So in other words, you, these other birds can fight amongst themselves and it doesn't bother me. But when it starts bothering me, I'm going to shut everything down. And that, that's the way these birds behave. And so you're standing there watching these birds down the gun barrel and there's five birds strutting we don't know who the dominant bird is so um that really complicates the question is like well who do i shoot you know it's like right. well i'm gonna shoot the one that 
as close as well. Okay, I have no idea who that is in that pecking order, but if it's that dominant bird, um, it's not it's not going to end as well for this group because the way these pecking orders work is when that dominant bird is lost, or even if the third bird is lost, number four doesn't just step up. Or if the dominant breeder is lost, number two doesn't just step up and immediately start breeding. That's not how sexual selection works at its most basic core. Instead, what they do is they start, they resolve this pecking order again. So if number one guy gets, gets killed, it's a free-for-all, and they're going to reestablish who's the top dog. And then, meanwhile, she's going to then go through her checks and balances again and say, is he the, is he the fittest bird, yes or no? So I think what I was saying about some of this delay, is, as, we're, as we're seeing in our nesting effort, I think it's, that's my hypothesis is that that's part of it, that some of these birds are disrupted, and lo and behold, this process starts over again, if you will. And she kind of goes back to the drawing board and says, hey, all right, I'm going to go back through and, and check these guys again and see who the, who the top dog is. And, and other researchers have shown this very clearly. Uh, there's been some really good work on fallow deer that you, they actually use a, a lek like a, like a grouse does. If you go in and remove some of those top dominant bucks, some of these these females forego breeding. They just they delay it for weeks and weeks and weeks, trying to revisit the lek and figure out who that top fallow deer is. While these bucks kind of sort it amongst themselves, uh, prairie chickens work on prairie chickens show the exact same thing. That if you go in and you you remove some of these dominant uh, males off the lek, that some of these females show up and they just don't breed. Because they they were going to breed with that guy that got removed, and now he's gone. I'm not going to breed with one of these other males until I go through the process of figuring out who's the best again, and thereby I'm going to delay breeding for a couple of weeks. So there's there's been other work outside of just the turkey world. I want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com Gear Shop. If you have any optical needs at all, give Cody a call directly at 702-847-8747. You can also send him an email at optics at GoHunt.com. You can also text him at 602-399-3699. I want to thank Go Hunt for their sponsorship. Also remind you guys, we're in application season. The Go Hunt Insider is the best Western hunting resource tool out there. It's got the best draw odds and harvest statistics available. You can go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Just by signing up, you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt gear shop gift card. I want to thank gohunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U. Uh, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Kuyu.com. Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. Phonescope.com, I want to thank them. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. Onxmaps.com, use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount on all orders at Onxmaps. And then ApexMunition.com. Apex Ammunition, it's the home of the TSS, the Tungsten Super Shot. That is the shotgun shells 
that I'm going to be using on my upcoming turkey hunts. Go to apexmunition.com to find out more. Guys, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, and so from my perspective, that's just totally opposite of what I thought. I would think if you whack the dominant bird immediately, you know, number two steps up, number three steps up, like they're just fighting for the chance. I I used to hunt for about 10 years in a row over in California, in Central California, and uh, a guy that I had met over there, one property we hunted, he said, um, you know, Jay, there's some real dominant birds on this property, and he said, you know, I think if you can get a couple of these dominant birds harvested, that our birds will, it will actually be better for the birds. And so that kind of always stuck with me that, okay, if, if I can figure out who the dominant one is, and he, he was basically making it sound like, and, and I want you to kind of tell me your thoughts on this, on his theory, that if you kill the dominant bird, it's better for the flock because a lot of times that dominant bird does not let other birds breed and he's kind of a bully and it's sometimes when that dominant bird can get at such an old age he can't actually or his sperm if you will isn't as good as the younger birds is that just complete bull for the most part (laughs) yes um and the reason is that these hens you know like i was saying these these hens are in in many cases there's been some work on on Rio's showing, uh, looking at this, we're, we're doing this on Easterns now, but uh, the work on Rio's showed that, that a large percentage, 40 plus percent of every clutch that was laid had more than one tom in the clutch. They genetically tested the, the eggs. So that, that tells me that these hens are wired by and large to breed with more than one tom. So even if you have this dominant Tom that's a real bully, a lot of these hens are not just visiting him. They're, they're visiting other birds on the landscape. So um, there is some, you know, in the poultry world, and that's not, you know, that, that side of this is not really my expertise. But, in the, you know, there is recognition that, you know, these birds are not designed to breed bird after bird after bird after bird in short succession that that's not really how they operate they they breed with one hen and the, their testosterone levels will will decline and they'll ramp back up and they'll breed with another hen you know so they kind of they oscillate they go through these cycles uh from a hormone production standpoint um but this notion that you go in and and take birds out of your flock because they're dominant and somebody and, and thereby somehow improve your flock fertility is it, that no that doesn't job biologically can you have a healthy flock let's say on a property you know our our utopia property that you and i own together and can can you literally have way less gobblers and still have a real successful viable flock or is it always give me the ratio of like you if you just said you know and maybe it's different within each turkey but you know i'm thinking of gould's turkey like is it what's your ratio that you would say this is what you want you know do you want two to ten do you want you know seven to ten gobblers to hens what what do you want yeah that's a that's a tough question um I would I kind I kind of look at it from a from an alternative viewpoint 
and, and maybe this will help answer your question. I think a lot of this, this equation is driven by production. In other words, how successful are nests and what's brood survival? I think that's where this starts because if you're producing a lot of birds every year, if you have high production, you're producing a lot of juvenile birds, you're recruiting lots of, of young hens into these social groups in the winter. These flocks are, are resilient. They're big. And you're, you're, you've got flocks of jakes in the fall that are hanging around together that become these exploded leks of, of these toms. You know, those are the, that's the future breeders, if you will. If that's a constant process where you're adding birds at a, at a good rate every year, then the numbers um, are going to work themselves out as long as you're judicious in how you harvest the bird, if that makes sense. I think where it really gets complicated is where you don't have high production, which right. is basically what we see in most of the eastern and southern United States and even throughout parts of the Midwest is production is down, and it's been declining for, for years. And in that situation... Um, we, we've started seeing something that really concerns me as a, as a turkey hunter and a, a, a scientist is that when we put our hands on young birds in the winter, so these would be birds that are in these winter flocks that were hatched last summer, by and large, we rarely ever catch young females anymore. Um, maybe 10% of all the hens that we catch in the winter are young birds. But we routinely catch jakes. And it, it, what that tells me is we're seeing, not only are we seeing declining production, meaning there's fewer young birds produced than there were two decades ago, but we're also seeing that within those young birds, there's a sex bias meaning these young hens are not making it. The, these broods, you know, let's just say the sex ratio is 50-50 when they hatch. If four poults out of that brood survive, almost all of them are males. If five survive, maybe one of them is a hen. And what that, I think, is doing is, it, it's just a law of, of numbers if you think about it, you end up with these winter flocks that are getting a little bit smaller each year from a female's perspective. There's just a, a little few, one hen here and there, fewer than there was before. Yet the male flocks uh, um, are okay. They, they may seem okay, and, and thereby you can continue to harvest those males because they're there. The problem is you're harvesting a high percentage of those males and you're not producing birds to replace them. Right. And and that's where well, I think over over time, right, Mike? Like I mean, you yeah, give it yeah, four yeah, or five. Yeah, this six would not years, be like it's gonna all of a sudden yeah. be very evident. Yes, and that that's exactly where we're at, Jay, in, in much of the, the eastern US. That that's exactly where we're at. Is like it doesn't happen over a year, it doesn't even happen over five years. But you look across a decade and you, you look at the data and you, you plot harvest versus production and you realize, oh, there's the, the light bulb just came on. Wait a minute. We're producing a lot fewer birds, but our harvest has been consistent through time. The only way that's possible is if we're harvesting a, a, 
a greater percentage of the males in the population. That's the only possible scenario that that could that could work there. So I think to your question about the ideal ratio, I, I really think that depends on one, how many birds you're producing, and then two, what the hunting framework is like. If you you know if you have very, very light pressure and very low male harvest then you could have a dominant tom of just a couple of birds and, and that they stay intact uh, you know, until the incubation starts, they're breeding, everybody's happy. But, but then you go in and you start plucking a bird here and there out. And now all of a sudden, even with a larger group of toms, if you take a third or a half of them out before incubation starts, then you could have started out with a scenario that looked a lot better on paper than ends up being dissolved because of the, the removal of those birds. I guess my next question, my mind's just racing. I mean, I've got like a million questions to ask you, but how does one determine that the hens are starting the incubation? Like how, do, what, what signs do you look for? Like, yeah, so is, what, it, is it on the limb and you're watching what they do as soon as they fly down? It kind of educate me on that. Yeah, so what, what we do is we, we capture these birds in the winter and we put a, a GPS unit on their, it's a basically, they wear it on their back like a backpack. And it's, um, it's like it a little trans- ribbon, right? It looks like a little ribbon kind of. Well, it, it's it's tied onto their back with like parachute cord. Yes. Okay, I've seen them. Yep. Yep. And those units collect a location every hour. So every hour on the hour, all day, we get a location for that bird, and then we also get a location at midnight. So we have a roost location every night, and then we get fairly close to the bird, a few hundred yards, uh, maybe you know a half mile depending on terrain, and we remotely download the data from the GPS unit. So we have this essentially a radio unit in our hand with an antenna. We suck all the data off of the transmitter every few days, and we, we plot it on a computer screen, and we start seeing that this bird is clearly visiting the same spot every day. Well, she's, she started late. So every day between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., she was in that spot or within a very short distance of that spot. Well, she's definitely laying, so let's keep an eye on her. So there we'll start downloading her data every day and trying to figure out when she starts sitting on that spot. And lo and behold, I mean, it's very obvious when you look at the GPS data, it's like, I mean, we can tell with certainty, okay, she started laying on April the 1st. She started incubation on April the 13th. She lost her nest on April 20th. Or, I mean, it, it's very clear when you, when you download the GPS and data. And does she start it, over if she loses it? A lot do. Um, a lot of that depends on the condition of the hen. Um, some of the, the Western species that are more precipitation-driven, like Rios, that you know, when it's really dry, they don't renest much at all. Um, Easterns tend to, in most years, 
about half or more, maybe a little less, depending on the population, will try a second clutch if they lose their first. Some will even try a third, and we've had a few birds that try to that actually laid four clutches uh, in a year. But by and large, it's usually either just one or one and two. Interesting, very interesting. Um, obviously, from your from your studies and the amount of time you've spent, you probably have a pretty good sense in Georgia and Alabama and the, the, the states that you've studied the most, like you can say, they're going to start laying on April 1st. They're going to start incubating on the 13th. Yep. Yeah. For me being way out here out West, wanting to know that exact data, are there studies that I could go to that would say for Gould's turkeys, I mean, I'm sure I've, I need to check with, like, the Arizona Game and Fish Department, maybe Jim Heffelfinger out here, whom you probably know. Um, yep. Mm -hmm. To know that to be able to manage my properties down in Mexico properly, it would be really nice to know when the average Goulds is laying her first egg, and it would be nice to know when she's incubating. And what you're telling me is if I can find out that incubation period, from that point, once she starts incubating, if, if there were 10 toms on a property and I literally shot five of them, after once she's there, it would really not affect, in other words, they've done all their breeding, correct? It, for the most yeah, part? Yeah. yeah, under the, you know, back to the, the production, under the oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Killing, killing five out of 10, I think would be problematic in almost any scenario okay. unless your production is really high. high. Right. But um, then you have to have high production, but you also have to high, have high production and not have huge predation on that production. Because even if you had precisely. high production, but half of those were getting or more, were 75% of those were getting killed by predation, it, it kind of wipes itself out. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah, and I will tell you, uh, Goulds are the least understood subspecies without question. Is that because they're, they're, the amount of uh, data is not collected like it is on, say, the Eastern? Yeah, and, and just, you know, less opportunity, you know, lower abundance. Um, we, we did a study in cooperation with Jim and, and Arizona Game of Fish that, that I could provide you where we, we did GPS mark a, a number of Gould's hens, and we did the same type of, of work that we are doing on Rios and Easterns with the GPS telemetry. And we do have, at least for that population of birds, we do have uh, pretty accurate um, laying dates and incubation dates for, for that area of Arizona. So I, I can certainly provide that to you, and, and Jim could as well. Okay. Um there's so much more to talk about on that topic, but I want to talk about uh, tom turkeys. Um, obviously, it, it varies from region to region, state to state, but as far as a tom turkey age, do toms get over the age of four or five years old very often, or what is the date at, or the age at which you would say most toms, I mean, it rarely does it... I guess my question is, what age does a tom rarely get to? 
in in our hunted in our heavily hunted populations we see very few toms that that age to be five or beyond okay most most toms are killed when they're two or three now there are exceptions in fact i we had a we had a banded bird shot last year in louisiana that was 10 oh my god um yeah so it, it happens but but by and large in the populations that i've worked in if they make it four or five years they're they're certainly on one end of the bell curve you know a lot of these birds are being harvested when they're two and, and three years old okay and another question is can jake's breed can jake's breed yes. was that the question yes no they jake's there was some some classic research done many years ago where the researchers went in and, and shot jakes collected them during the season the breeding season and then tested to see what their how far along spermatogenesis had had occurred and what they showed is it's such a tiny percentage of jakes that are even remotely capable of breeding during the breeding season they actually become capable after the season so the the notion that well if you if you remove a tom and a jake just steps in and breeds during the 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 breeding season that's that's false what happens instead is the season the breeding season ends this year and then as the summer is progressing spermatogenesis allows that tom to then become a two-year-old and at that point he's a breeder so in other words potentially if a hen lost nest one lost nest two obviously time's going by and she starts on nest three there could be a period of time where that jake is now old enough where he could potentially breed is what you're saying yeah what they found is there were there were a few there okay. were there was a small percentage of jakes that later in the late late spring early summer there were a, a there was a small percentage that had gone far enough along hormonally that they could produce viable sperm but by and large across the population most did not but as soon as they're a two-year-old they absolutely can breed for sure oh yeah yeah okay. yeah by the time they're they're in that two-year-old age class that you know that's the we know that's the most vocal birds in many cases they're very aggressive um those those are birds that are definitely part of breeding groups okay uh question for you does spur length directly relate to age no no, this is a this is a question I get a lot, and um, and people argue with me all the time. But but no, the short answer is spur length. The only thing spur length tells you, uh, at least in the in the easterns and in, in Osceola's, it, it's a little more tricky in some of the western birds because their spurs aren't as long anyway. But but generally, what spurs will tell you is you're either looking at a jake or you're looking at some other age. That's about it. Um, from, from banding birds through the years, we have clearly demonstrated that you can have a two-year-old bird that has inch and a quarter spurs. You could have a two-year-old bird that has three-quarter inch spurs. You could have a four-year-old bird that has one inch spurs. 
Uh, it's highly variable, and there is no there's no clear pattern across the population. So these these images that we've I, and I, I've taught students with these same images saying, well, this is a Jake, this is a two-year-old, and this is a three-year-old. Those are false. Um, some birds in the population fit within that those images, but by and large, a lot don't. So I tell hunters and myself when I walk up to a bird, it's like, okay, well, I know that's an adult. Well, he's got an inch spur. Well, he could be two. He could be four. I really don't know. And honestly, I don't care. Right. Um, you know, he's an adult, and he was gobbling, and he put on a show, and, and I'm successful. I'm blessed and fortunate to, to take the bird. So, yeah, spur length is, is kind of tricky. And then, you know, when you get in areas where birds are wearing their spurs a little more than in other places, some of the, the, the western subspecies, and you know this, you'll harvest birds that, that their spurs are kind of beaten up and rounded and rough, and it's, it's a crapshoot. You know, again, all you know is you're looking at either a jake or not. Okay, and I'm so glad to hear you say all of that because, you know, I, I talk to a lot of hunters, and I, every year I get one or two of them that are really into spur length and really into beard length and, you know, all of that. And I go off of a notion of if it's strutting and if it's gobbling and if it comes in and gives you a good show, why do you care whether his spurs are seven eighths of an inch or an inch and a quarter or a half inch, you know? And I think exactly. as turkey hunters, we have to kind of, you know, it, you know, we have deer, we have elk, we have sheep, we have all these other animals. That's you know, a lot of it is based on inches and this and that. Can we just have one animal where we just hunt for the sheer pleasure and fun of watching them display, come to our call? and gobble and the full excitement and it's a mature bird it's got a beard like you know it, the people that start studying spur length to me or it i just tell them look go go hunt with somebody else that we're not a good fit but so the guys that walk up and they just shot a bird they look up and they look at the spurs and go looks like a good three-year-old there that is absolutely there's no way to to say that with accuracy correct Yep, that is absolutely correct. Is there anything else that you, as a scientist, someone that, you know, does this for a living, can literally walk up, shoot a bird, and go, or do you literally just say, yep, it's a mature bird? I mean, is there any other thing that you could potentially age this bird on? No, no. I mean, really, you're looking at beard length is not a good indicator, as we know, Um Body weight is not a good indicator. Um, body height is not a good indicator. There, there's some there's some anecdotal stuff out there about the length of their wing cord and this and that. But by and large, I, I mean, the science suggests that it's either a jake or it's not. It, it, it has an entire tail fan. Its primaries are barred all the way out to the ends. And... It doesn't have a, a quarter-inch spur. Well, it's it's an adult. That's pretty much it. It could be two or five. Uh, and to your point, I agree. I, I don't care how old he is. Um, I just, you know, I just did ask a turkey to do something that's that's against its ecology. I mean, they're not supposed to come to the hens. The hens are supposed to come to them. And I got him to, to do his thing, and I enjoyed the display and, and the gobbling and, 
and the hunt's over, who yeah. cares how long his spurs are or how long his beard it is? It's, you yeah. know, just enjoy enjoy the bird for what he is. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to ask you on your Instagram, which I encourage all the listeners out there. It's Wild Turkey Doc. Um, D-O-C. You have a diagram on there, and it's a Gould's turkey that a psycho hen Gould's turkey that was walking all over the world. Talk a little bit about that um, particular hen. Yeah, so Gould's do some, and, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but man, these birds do some crazy stuff. They uh, and we see this, we, we saw this with some Merriam's birds that we put GPS on as well, but the, the ghouls are, man, those birds, they travel, they, they, they hop up on those ridges and they start walking and they cover just tremendous areas. That particular bird that you're referencing, um, that was kind of a humorous post. Um, that hen, she was captured, and if you look at her location, she she uses those those ridge tops and moves around all of a sudden one day she took off and walked to the nearest town that was actually across the state line and she went to a bar and she, she did she went to a bar and she roosted in the tree beside the bar i actually put a picture a street level picture of the the bar on instagram and if you look at the bar you you can look to the left of the bar and you see a tree that's where she roosted so she, she walks into town, she roosts at the bar. The next day she ends up going, I'm not, I'm not making this up. She goes to the church yard and she ended up hanging around in the courtyard at the church almost all day. Um, and then she, she ends up returning to basically walks the same path that she took to get to town. She turns around and walks back and um, but those, man, those Goulds birds, they cover some, some territory and it's pretty amazing. You look at how rugged and, and that, you know, the areas they use, how rugged those areas are and they just, they just book it, man. They, they get on those ridges and they go. Yeah. My takeaway from that is the girl, the old girl wanted a drink and she went down to the bar and then she realized she needed some repentance. So she went to church and then she it, went back home. <laughs> it, exactly. Exactly. Went, went, yeah. Went and spent a night on, on the town and then, um, did a little, uh, a little penance and then she went back home. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about roosting. Um, and sorry for jumping around here, but there's just so much going through my head. Let's talk about roosting. And you talk about those winter flocks as they are all safety in numbers in the winter. It's very common all across the U.S. to witness turkeys in big groups. And then they start breaking up. And talk about roosting. And, and is there any data to show on which side of a ridge that a turkey likes to roost. One of observations I've had is I've seen a lot of birds roost on east-facing ridges. One of the things I think is, and we're talking primarily Merriams and Goulds here, one of the things I've thought is potentially with, with the sun coming up that maybe they're on the east-facing slope because they want to see that you know gray light coming for whatever reason. Is there any correlation between one side of the ridge or the other on roosting sites, or is it totally random? Not 
not with Easterns or Rios. We we haven't seen that. Um, the work, and I'll I, honestly, I'd, I'd have to go back and look. I, I don't recall there being a strong relationship with the Goulds birds, but that was a sample of about forty animals. Um, the Easterns and Rios that we have, I mean, we have six hundred plus Easterns and four or five hundred Rios. So I mean, we, we have a lot more data on on them. Um, I don't know about the aspect there for the Goulds birds, but no, it's not random for sure. So what we see with with Rios, um, and which as you know live in a in kind of a roost limited landscape, they only have within their ranges. They may only have a few places that that offer adequate roosts, so they tend to use them repeatedly. Um, and then they, they kind of forage out from those roosts and then they, they return to them. So those are certainly not random. They're, they're very kind of systematic on the landscape. The Easterns are much different. The Easterns, what they do is they have a, a certain number of roosts in their home range and they use them repeatedly, but they don't use them night after night. So they will go to this roost site tonight and then tomorrow night they're at a different roost site the next night they're at a different roost site they may come back to the first roost site a few nights later so so th there there does appear to be a certain number of spots that are for whatever reason ideal and they they time you know they kind of circle back to these roosts through time but they generally don't use them each you know night after night after night do you think personally from what you've witnessed, do you think that that's just their strategy and they've learned to not stay in the same spot over and over and be able to move around and that's trying to self-preserve, you know, they're, they're trying to move around or do you think it has nothing to do with the impact that, you know, hunters or, or being disturbed has on them? I, I, what we have seen it is it, it's very clearly just part of their ecology and its arts from day one. So these, if you look at broods when they when hens hatch the first day, they take those poults and they go somewhere and they spend the day and then they roost. They never roost in the same spot. So she may roost here tonight and be two or 300 yards away tomorrow night and two or 300 yards away the following night. This starts at a very young age. And to your point, it makes complete sense. Don't go back to the same spot that you put a bunch of scent at that you, particularly when you're on the ground, you know, the first couple of weeks of their life, they, they can't fly. So they, they're roosting on the ground. Even when they're adults, that makes sense to me that don't go, back to the same spot every night unless you have to because predators could key in on the fact that you're repeatedly coming back to this same site and and that is not good from a survival perspective so um for both sexes i think that's part of it from the gobbler's perspective for the for the toms i think there's some pretty compelling evidence suggesting some of that is sound driven that these birds need to pick spots on the landscape where they can project their sound without it being attenuated and, and, and torn up, if you will. So the sound needs to be able to travel across the landscape and not be interrupted. 
So, you know, for Easterns and Merriam, I mean, for Rios and, and, and Goulds and Merriams that tend to use more open areas, you know, you can hear those birds quite a ways. For Easterns, it gets more complicated because they're, they're a forest bird. So there very likely are spots in their home range that these toms recognize through time, hey, that's a spot I can project sound. And what's really remarkable to me, if you think about it, these groups of toms are dying and they're being replaced by other toms. And if you, you know, if you're a turkey hunter and you've been hunting the same property for 20 years, I hear this all the time and I've seen it myself. You always hear birds over there, or I always hear birds. If they're going to be gobbling, I'm going to hear one on that ridge over there. And, and that may be five generations of turkeys that have come and gone and you're still seeing them. They may not roost in the same tree, but they're roosting in the same general area year after year. There has to be something there to that roost that we can't perceive that they can. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, something that you had said, my mind keeps going back to uh, 10 minutes or so ago in the conversation where you said you are, you are noticing as a scientist that in, in essence, what I, from a layman's term, what I'm getting at is our hen populations are declining. Did I, is that what I picked up from you saying? That's what, we, that's what we're seeing across much of the southeast. Okay, yes. So, that. so my question with that is with the success that the National Wild Turkey Federation and, you know, all of the state agencies, I mean, the wild turkey recovery, if you will, over what the last 40, 50 years is, is unbelievable, but are we, is there awareness that this is happening and what can we do about it in your, from your perspective? Because that's very alarming to me that maybe 50 years from now we'll be in a situation where why didn't we do anything about it? There's people noticing that there's less hens. Yeah, this is certainly a topic of broad conversation sure. in the in the in the east and midwest yes the, the there are the state agencies that i work with are very clearly in tune with the notion that we've we've seen declines in production and abundance across states and um the answers to the solution are complex and and far-reaching you know you know jay it it's, it's dawning when you think about it, but from a, like a habitat perspective, there's very little a state agency can do or that NWTF can do to affect habitat at a huge, broad spatial scale. And that's just, that's just reality. I mean, state agencies, um, they, are, they are managing very small percentages of the landscape. Even federal agencies, if you look across the region have very little impact on most turkeys on the landscape because most turkeys live on private land. So, you know, doesn't that so habitat. we need to really educate our private landholders to make sure that we yes. that we stop this decline? Yes. And doesn't yes. that is is it is it naive to say that the female uh, harvest needs to be stopped? Yeah, that's a complex issue, you know. <laughs> that's another hour-long podcast, I'm sure. But 
I mean, yeah, I would yeah. just think that the, the, the private, the NWTF and the state agencies really have got to get with these private landowners and make sure that they understand that there's a problem and then there has to be some sort of solution. And, and you know, I'm sure there's a lot being done on it. I'm not trying to say there's nothing, but I'm, it's the first I've heard of it. And it kind of alarms me to say, wait a minute, we've got to protect these birds. Yeah, the, the fall harvest issue, you know, many years ago, fall harvest was, was an important source of mortality for, for a lot of populations in the east. But uh, And there have been a number of, of projects, research, showing that, you know, if you have fall harvest of, uh, of single-digit percents of the hen population, you can create declines. So, yeah, there's a recognition that fall harvest can be problematic. On the flip side, in a lot of areas, we see, you know, one, some states don't even have fall seasons, but the ones that do, you're generally seeing a declining participation in, in fall hunting. And I think part of that is the spring hunting craze kind of took over. You know, fall hunting is a different a different beast. Um, you're, the birds aren't gobbling. You're locating flocks and, and and calling, you know, either busting them up and, and calling them back to you, or you're just opportunistically encountering birds. So it doesn't tend to be as sexy and, and dramatic and uh, as spring hunting would be. So I think you're you're just seeing a lot, you know, a decline in participation, partially because of that, to the point where there's so few birds being harvested that it it likely doesn't m matter you know, to, to a tremendous amount, to a tremendous degree, I'm sorry. Sure. But yes, fall harvest can be problematic. And, and we've known that for many years. Uh, it just depends on the percentage of the, of the hens that you remove. But, but yeah, I, I agree. This is ultimately, um, it's ultimately resting on the shoulders of people like me who, who do science and, and, and produce information that can be valuable to agencies and landowners. And then it rests on the agencies to, to take that information and, and apply it. And ultimately, it depends on all of us to get the information out to private landowners and the public at large to make them aware of what's ongoing, make them aware of what the science says, and then help them through the decision-making process of, okay, what do we do about it? What are we going to do to have a measurable positive influence on this bird? And, and that's part of, I mean, you mentioned uh, the Instagram post I made. That's, that is, by and large, the reason that I started posting on social media is because there generally is a failure for scientists to to push information out to the public at large and make them aware of what's being done and more importantly, what it actually means to them right. as a manager or a landowner or a hunter. And, and that's been a failure from on, on our part. And I, I look in the mirror and when I say that is that we have to do better and we have to, we have to work with the landowners and, and by and large, the private sector is what is who owns all the land. So, we're going to have to change the way we, we look at this bird. And, and, you know, I don't want to throw the alarm flag, you know, uniformly. I mean, turkeys are doing fine in, in some areas, 
but but we really, at least in the South and East, we have a, we have an issue that's been ongoing for several decades, and it was right under our nose, and we didn't really throw the flag, if you will, until we until we realized that harvest was declining, and because up until harvest started declining, everything was good, mm-hmm. and and in reality, it wasn't. Right. Production was declining, and and now harvest is declining, and in many areas, not in all, but in, in many areas, you're seeing declines in harvest, and you're still seeing declines in production or really low production in in many areas. And now it's obvious to all involved. I said, well, not all. There's always naysayers, but there, it's obvious to the agencies. It's obvious to many. Um, avid turkey hunters that i talk to they know we have a problem they right. they know that there's an issue and that we have to that we have to try to get in front of it because right now we're we're behind it yeah well it's it's good we do podcasts we do stuff like this and it brings awareness and mike you've been very gracious with your time i want to do this again i've got a lot more questions to ask uh, but I do want to end on, are you going to be able to get out? Have you already been hunting? What are your turkey hunting plans uh, coming up over the next month or so? Yeah, uh, well, first, I'd be glad to do this again. But the, the turkey hunting took a serious hit with this, uh, with the coronavirus issue. I I had a full spring of trips planned that are, I've already had to cancel my trip to Florida to hunt Osceola's. I've had to cancel my trip to Texas to hunt Rio's. I'm basically sitting in my house trying to be productive and work and write and and do podcasts and and keep people informed. I'm really I'm really concerned that this spring, at least by and large, is going to be a bust for me. But um, but we're going to give it a shot here locally and. Once things uh, settle down a little bit, and and we're not being told to, to stay in our houses and or in our immediate yards, and and I'm going to try to get out and chase birds. I I, I really I really like to travel. To I like to hunt birds outside of my own backyard because I love meeting people and I love hearing you know I love hearing stories about what people are seeing and observing and. And that helps give me perspective as a scientist to, to, to hear hunters because I'm a hunter myself. Um, that helps me. And the, the notion that I, I'm potentially not going to be able to do that this year is really upsetting. But we're going to play it ear, uh, kind of by ear and day by day. And hopefully things improve and I'll be able to make a couple of trips. I've got some others later in the spring to chase Merriam's that I, uh, that I hope I'll be able to do. Right on, man. Well, thanks so much for your time, and I encourage the listeners. I'm going to link up uh, Mike's uh, contact on on Instagram, Wild Turkey Doc. Uh, And also, Mike, um, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know if they do have questions, uh, the best way to reach out to you. Yeah, absolutely. So you can... You can find me, like Jay said, on Instagram. Uh, I have the same handle on Twitter. I, I post a lot of content on Twitter. I have a Facebook page. It's just under my name um, that you can that you can find me on. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm a professor at the University of Georgia, so you can certainly find my email address there. Um, 
in the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. You can shoot me an email. I'll be happy to hear from you and, and answer questions as quickly as I can. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, God bless. And um, your Bulldogs, you kind of had a letdown last season. What do you think? Uh, it's a perpetual letdown. <laughs> and and, and I'll, I'll get beaten up in the I'll get beaten up in the in the Georgia community here, but I'm an LSU fan. Oh um, my gosh! How do you I, survive I there, huh? <laughs> I know, I know. I uh, I spent 11 years in Baton Rouge, and and it is an infectious, just crazy football atmosphere. And that my kids were born in Baton Rouge. They became Tiger fans as children. We tailgated all the time. We were passionate about it and i've just not been able to drop it since i left there um well, so i catch I, I catch some flack but um I, i'm a georgia fan when they're not playing lsu let's say that <laughs> good for you man right on well sounds good well god bless 